We are going to look at First and Second Thessalonians this evening, and by now, this is the last lesson in the series, you know the, the format. You know what, we're, what we are going to do. We're going to go through the letter, not looking at all of the details, and surely we understand that there is so much more to be learned from the letters that God has sent these churches. Great and important truths that will deepen our understanding and our, and our uh, commitment, that will explain to us what we ought to do, what we must not do, and letters that will uh, help us to overcome error and sin in our own lives. We need to keep studying the letter. But in this series, of course, we've backed away from the letters and from a greater distance, we are looking at the overall theme of the, maybe the one single message in the letter. And uh, different churches need to hear different things. Or we might also say the same church will need different messages at different times because things are never the same. And tonight we're looking at the church at Thessalonica. And if you remember uh, from uh, that early review that we did in the Bible class, I thought since it's been so long ago we'd look at a map again this evening, that you remember that Paul was on his uh, second journey. And as he received the uh, message to go over to Macedonia and help up there in Philippi, after Philippi he comes to the city of Thessalonica. And that's where the two, the T-O, that's the city and the church to which the letter was written. And so the letter was written to Thessalonica, the church that was established there. When Paul got there and started preaching, the text says he preached there for three Sabbath days and was really quite successful. And because of the success that he had, there was a jealousy among the Jews. And they stirred up some uh, evil men in the city, and basically they created a mob that, that got the whole city in an uproar, if the text says. And then they couldn't, evidently, this is my assumption, they couldn't find Paul, so they attacked the house of Jason, grabbed Jason and was manhandling him and taking him somewhere, to do evil deeds to him, and, and the authorities come in and at least calm it down for a little bit. But at that point, the brethren decide, Paul, you need to get out of town. And so, how long exactly they were in Thessalonica, we don't know. But the indication is not long. The three Sabbath days, that, that's at least two weeks, with a, you know, a Sabbath day on each end, one in the middle. So, two weeks. But we may be able to stretch that a little bit and still hold into the text. But he wasn't there very long, a few weeks at the most. And things became so dangerous that he had to leave town. So Paul then, on the second journey, leaves Thessalonica and really goes a long way before his next stop. He goes all the way down to Athens, which you can't see because it's under the from there. And after Athens, and he preaches on Mars Hill, he then goes to Corinth, and we know about his work in Corinth, where he lives with Aquila and Priscilla and they're making sense. And he stays in Corinth for a long time, for, uh, for two years. Uh, maybe more. So he's in Corinth for a long time. But after he gets to Corinth, not long after he gets to Corinth, he's worried about what's going on back in the church in Thessalonica. We understand why he's worried, don't we? If the people were that angry at Paul, Paul leaves town, you think everything's going to be okay, and now the church can go about doing its thing and, and, and keep on teaching? Well, probably not. The animosity that was against Paul is going to be turned against the church. And so Paul was worried about them. So he left Timothy and Silas in Thessalonica when he left. But then soon after that, he, while he's still in Athens, he calls them, come, I want to hear what's going on. So they come back to him, and they bring him a message that they're, they're holding fast. They love one another, they love the truth, they want to do what's right, 
They haven't given up. And so when Timothy and Silas come to Paul in Athens and give him that, well, he calls from in Athens, they come to him when he, by the time he gets to Corinth, and he hears that message, then he writes them a letter, evidently, immediately, writes them back. And that's what First Thessalonians is. So what do you think is in the letter? We're not even looking at it. What's in it? Well, he's going to tell them to hang on. You've got to hang on. You can't give in to the pressure. You cannot let this discourage you from doing this right. You have got to stand firm and just do what you know the truth tells you, what, tells you to do. It doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks. It doesn't matter how big the enemy is. It doesn't matter how loud the threats are. And ultimately, it doesn't matter what they do to you, literally. You've got to hold on to the truth. But what do you use for incentive to get someone to hold on when the consequences are all kinds of persecution, likely beating, imprisonment, possible death? What kind of motivation and incentive do you put in front of people for them to hold on? Well, they cannot be people who are thinking worldly and materially because if you're going to die for the, for the faith, there's just not a whole lot you can offer unless, of course, it's eternal life. And so it's got to be something that is going to extend an eternity that's going to matter. But what's interesting in this letter is that he uses the return of Jesus Christ as the motivation. And interestingly enough, and I suppose this may be why Thessalonians is divided into chapters as it is, but at the end of every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, there's a reference to the return of Christ. Now, the chapter divisions are not inspired, but probably the whoever did the divisions were noticing noticed that repetition and saw that as a marker. And as Paul would conclude a, 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 a conversation and he would reference that the Lord is coming, then they would put a chapter in right there. And they'd start a new chapter with a new discussion. And then he would do it again. And so tonight, we're very simply going to read through and notice what Paul is saying to the church and how that he punches it with that idea because the Lord is coming. We're at a disadvantage because of the blessings that we have in this country. And we thank God for the blessing of peace and prosperity, both of which contribute to how we're able to gather and assemble, not only without threat from somebody else, not the police, not the government, and not even those who are opposed to us. The government protects us from people who would do us harm, maybe, and so we, we live in, in a, a, a protected condition. And even beyond that, we live in a comfortable position as we think about our meeting places. And um, in that condition, the, the challenge for us is to remember that this world is not my home. I'm just passing through because it's so comfortable here. The Thessalonians weren't sure what was going to happen tomorrow to them. And so to them the return of Christ became a significant uh, motivation to hold on because the Lord was coming. But even though we live in a place of peace and prosperity, we can also lose faith for a very different reason. I'm not so sure that God only is responsible for our blessed condition. I'm not so sure that Satan isn't using our ease as, an, as a whole new area of temptation. Possible. But regardless of that, I do know that it's easier for me to relax and to lose sight and lose focus on the return of Christ. To live today as though I've got, what am I? Everybody wants to know, right? I'm 55 in January. And so, how many more years have I got? I've got lots. 
got lots of work to do. And I kind of relax in my day and, and plan out my years because I'm not in any hurry. And it's easy for me to live life in a much more relaxed, spiritually, in a much more relaxed condition because I don't see that urgency uh, about me. Let's go back to the time of Thessalonica and the conditions in which they lived and see if we can't feed off of what Paul told them and live with a, a little bit more consciousness of the return of Christ. Remember when Paul finished his, his letter to his first letter to the Corinthians, he said, Maranatha, Lord, O oh Lord, come. I'm not so sure we're anxious for him to come because we've got things we want to do tomorrow. But we need to be anxious for the return of Christ. Well, let's look here at what we see. First of all, in verses 2 through 8 of the first chapter, he praises them like he did the church at Philippi. They're doing so well. Here, they're doing so well just hanging on. If they're still assembling, publicly assembling, then you're doing great because of the threat that they're under. And he says uh, uh, in verse 2, I'm giving thanks and I'm praying for you. Verse 3, remembering about ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. That patience of hope, that's not the long-term endurance because it hasn't been long. That is the enduring of affliction. And he mentions in verse 5 that the gospel did not come only in word, but also in power and the spirit and in assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then you became examples to the other churches of Macedonia, farther to the north, and, uh, and Achaia, farther to the south. You're an example to other churches just in that you are holding on to your faith. Because out from you, the word of the Lord sounded. And we don't have to tell people about you because they've already heard. And notice verse 9 where he says, For they themselves, these other churches, they declare concerning us what manner of entry we have had to you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And that's an interesting view of a person's salvation, that you have turned to the true God from idols to do what? To wait for the coming of the Lord from heaven. That's the way they lived. That's what they lived for. They were waiting. Remember the three parables that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 24 and 5? The... the, the Steward over the household, the ten virgins, the talents. And the point was the master's away, but he's coming back. He's coming back. Whatever the picture, our role is always working and laboring in anticipation of his return. That's the attitude that we need to have. Waiting for the sun from heaven. In chapter 2, Paul talks about his work a little bit more. And notice he keeps on this theme of the suffering and the afflictions, because that's what they're facing. Verse 2 even after we had suffered beforehand, were spitefully treated at Philippi. You knew about that. And then we came to Thessalonica. And we, in our verse 3, in our teaching, we did not teach in error or uncleanness, nor deceitfully, but we, we taught what was approved by God, in verse 4. In verse 5, we didn't use flattering words as a cloak of covetousness. We didn't butter you up and ask for your money. In verse 6, nor did we seek glory from men, from you or anybody else, 
in verse 6. And we didn't even make demands as apostles. He speaks of the humility. Verse 7, he says, We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. And so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. We can imagine what this is building up in their hearts as they remember that kind of association that they had with the Apostle Paul. It feels good to remember. That's, that's who's writing the letter. I remember. That's the way he was. That's how he cared about it. And verse 11, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom. We will charging you and urging you like a father his children. You need to walk in the ways of God. And he says in verse 13, when you receive the word of God from us, you welcome it not as the words of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. It's God's word. That's why you have to do it. You became imitators of righteous people, the churches, in verse 14. And they suffered from their own countrymen, verse 14 and 15, just like the Judean Christians suffered at the hands of their countrymen. Suffering affliction from our own neighbors is par for the course among the people of God. Really, the only exception to that is our history in this country. That's really the only example in history where a church existed for any length of time without persecution. That's the exception. We look at it as an expected right, don't we? Not on the, not on the, on the, the field of, of uh, world history, it's not. This is the exception. And we need to have the attitude that Paul urged them to have, to be faithful regardless. In verse 17, he says that he was longing to be with them. He misses them. In 18, I want to come to you, but Satan hindered us. We know what that was. That's that persecution. He had been killed as soon as he came into town. Verse 19, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? At his coming. It always comes back to that. You know, what am I working for? As Paul talks to them about how he works. What am I working for? I am working and caring and teaching and writing. I'm all about seeing you in the presence of the Lord when he comes. That's it. That's what life's about. The Lord is coming. I'll be there and you'll be there. And we'll be with the Lord. Nothing else matters, does it? That's really it. And so, that's what Paul is calling for and longing for. In chapter 3, we read about how that Timothy was left behind and he couldn't stand it anymore. In verse um, 3, I didn't want to be alone in Athens anymore. I called Timothy to come. And when Timothy came, in verse 4 and following, he, uh, in verse 5, I could no longer endure it. I had to know how you were doing, to know of your faith. And so, verse 6, now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, desiring to see us as also we want to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we are comforted concerning you by your faith. Listen to verse 8. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Just think about it. Paul's writing, he says, in my affliction, and when I heard about you, I was so relieved, because I live if you're standing fast in the faith. 
Nothing else matters to me, is what Paul is saying. That's what I live for. And if you fall away, you buckle under the pressure, then I might as well quit. I'm lost. I've worked for nothing. So you, Paul says, you mean everything. And so he says in verse 11, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another. Don't they need to love one another in this situation? I mean, that's all they've got, clinging to one another. And may the Lord increase your love one to another and to all just as we do to you. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. What a day that's going to be. It's not just going to be me there and you there, but all the saints will be there when the Lord comes. Just keep coming back to that theme, doesn't it? The Lord's return is not really what the letter's about, is it? What the letter's about, you've got to hold on. You've got to be faithful. There's not a lot of doctrine in here, is there? Not a lot of teaching. Not a lot of instructions about morality. Not a lot of answering of false teachers. What's it about? This is another one of Paul's emotional books, saying, brethren, do you understand the value of what you now hold? Do you understand how desperately I care about you? And don't you understand that when the Lord comes, he doesn't suggest because the Lord's coming. It's like other things in the Bible that is just taken for granted, and in a sense that makes it even all the more sure. The Lord's coming, and so you better be there. I'm expecting to see you. The Lord's coming, and we will see him with all the saints. Well, in chapter 4, he goes on a little bit further, and he says, I want you to, you've got to grow. You can't hold on against this kind of opposition and persecution and hard times if you're not growing. Holding on will, will never make it. You know, you're hanging off a cliff on a rope. I, I think I'm just going to hang here. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> Why don't, while you've still got a little energy left in, you start climbing the thing. Get up the rope. Don't just hang there. You know, just stay where we're at. It's, it's not going to make it when we're facing this opposition. Climb, grow, you've got to move forward. And so in verse 1 he says, I'm urging and exhorting in the Lord Jesus Christ that you should abound the more and more just as you received us from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Everything I talk to, do more of it. Do more of it, do more of it. And so in verse 3 he does talk about your sanctification. That is, you're set apart from the world. Establish that clearly so that you have no part in this world, that you are separate, you are sanctified. And that you will abstain from sexual immorality. You will possess each one his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not with a passion of lust. No one of you is going to take advantage of his brother. You are going to, the, the, the standard of morality and the bar that you live by has been raised so high. That's where you're going to be. And you need to be all the way there so that your separation from the world is clear. And then you'll be able to endure. You can hang on. He goes on to say, in 7, the Lord did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. And so then in chapter 4, verse 9, we have the long section about the return of Jesus Christ. I'd like to read this more carefully, since this is at the heart of the message in the letter. There are some evidently some questions about the return of Christ among these brethren. It seems that some of the saints have died already. 
Were they martyred? Were they murdered and killed for their faith? Paul doesn't say that. Maybe they were sick and died. Maybe they were old and passed on. But whatever the reason, there are some, as he euphemistically says here, have fallen asleep. And that's a pleasant way of looking at it. From a spiritual standpoint, it's true. It's what the Lord called it. And so he says, some have fallen asleep. He says, I don't want you to worry about them. Evidently they were. Don't worry about those that have fallen asleep. They will not be left behind. They are not forgotten. They're not going to miss out. And in fact, as I'm going to explain to you, Paul is saying, they're going to get to heaven before you. Let's read it. Verse 13, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's the great comfort. That's the greatest of all comforts. That living or dead, whatever this life gives to us or takes from us, the day is coming when we will all of us meet the Lord in the air and then we will always be with Him. And as Revelation clearly describes, there will be no tears and no hunger and no crying and no pain and no darkness and not anything ugly or wicked or bad. It's all good. It's all good. And that's how chapter 4 ends. This discussion really continues in chapter 5, though, so this is a little bit more of an odd break. But he says in verse 5 of chapter 5, verse 1, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. This is evidently something he's already told them, right? I don't need to write this to you, but he does anyway. He says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. The imagery there of the pregnant woman, this is true of all of the parables and metaphors in the Bible, don't take everything that has to do with birthing a child and apply it to the, resur- uh, to the return of Jesus Christ. But the fact that you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting, and then and now it's time and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting, and, you know, wh- when's the baby coming? That's the only point he's making. You don't know. And then suddenly, okay, now, and we, we run around and things get hectic. And that's the way it is with the return of Christ. We don't know when he's coming. But we wait and we wait and we wait and we wait. And the point is we need to be ready all of the time. And that's what he says in verse 5. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are none of the night or of the darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. 
For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. He says it again now. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And so, we need to abound the more and more, and we need to understand the nature of the Lord's return. And as he then talks in chapter 5, and we'll skip a little bit of this in verses 12 through 22, there's some admonition to the brethren, listen to the elders. And some admonition to the elders, treat the brethren right. Help each other is what this paragraph is going to be saying, not just of those two groups, but in the body of Christ. We need to be helping each other. And again, think in terms of the church at Thessalonica and the chaos of the world in which they live, trying to maintain faith in that time of persecution. Hold on to each other. Sustain one another. And so then he concludes in verse 23 and following, and may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, five times. And that's the message. That's behind all of the messages of the gospel. And it's why we do all of the things we do. You know, the mercy of God and the grace and the instructions and the, the calling and the church and all that we have, we say is meaningful, meaningful only because we have the forgiveness of sin. But even that is, is useful only if we're finally and ultimately delivered from this world. And that's in the return of Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to look at it a little more quickly than first, but in 2 Thessalonians, he starts off in verse 3 by, again, thanking them for their faithfulness. And this is only a couple of months later. The church is still less than a year old. Just a few months later, he writes again. And they're still hanging on, and he's still happy to know us. In verse 4, he's still boasting about them. And you know, when someone's struggling, it doesn't take a lot of success for you to boast. And that's what they're doing. They're struggling. But as they're struggling, now he's more direct. He says in verse 4, So we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is a manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. you understand that statement? God is righteous and the persecutor will ultimately be persecuted by God. They're going to get it. Nobody gets away with what they're doing to you. That's what the whole book of Revelation is about. Nobody gets away with it. And God's righteous judgment will repay them with tribulation. Verse 7, And give you, who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. 
because our testimony among you was believed. And so we praise to them in this thing that they will thus be faithful. That's what's coming, he says. That's what's going to happen. And you need to hold on because that absolutely will happen. Justice is coming. You will be vindicated. Whoops, it's not there. You will be vindicated. And since you know that you will be vindicated, the point is, take heart. Hang on. And that helps, doesn't it? The fact that justice will finally come helps me endure now. Think about the evil that people do and how hard it is not to lash out and take vengeance. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. And in our culture, the idea of independence and take care of yourself and standing up for yourself, I mean, that's we're taught and we're, we, we're, we grow up to, to be that way. And I'm holding my fist because that's what we are, right? And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And Jesus says, inasmuch as in, in you, be at peace with all men. That's what the Lord says. That's hard. But i tell you what helps. When I am wrong, whatever the wrong, however bad it is, imagine whatever you want. Whatever this person does to me, if I can imagine what the Lord is ultimately going to do to them, I can take a deep breath and begin to feel pity more and more and anger less and less. It almost doesn't matter what they do to me. They steal from me. They beat me up. They call me names. Wreck my car for the fun of it. And what do people get for misconduct before God? The flaming fire, eternal destruction. I don't need to be angry. I can show pity. Because that's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. And so that helps me, and I can take heart. We go a little bit further in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and somewhat of a complicated passage. We want to know who this, this evil one is that opposes God. But the point is, he says, now concerning, verse 1, the coming of the Lord and our gathering together with him. I've been talking about that. I don't want you to be shaken in your mind or troubled in your spirit by word or by letter from us or anybody else, thinking that the Lord is going to come immediately, because he's not. He's got to clear this up. Because evidently some had come to that conclusion that, okay, the Lord's coming, so we're looking around the corner, He'll be here any minute. Now, believing that is fine, except as time goes on, what happens? We're disillusioned. Our faith begins to shake, and we wonder what happened. And we start to hear the mockers that say, where is the promise of His coming? One day comes, and another one comes, and another one comes, and everything's the same. You look a little silly now, don't you? If I really thought that the coming was immediate, that's exactly what would happen. And Paul does not want that to happen to them. The Lord is not coming immediately. And he, just, he says here that there are some things and there is some history that's going to happen before he comes. Now, people look at this paragraph and try to figure out from this paragraph when the Lord actually is going to come. Of course, that's a misuse of the paragraph. Because the Bible repeatedly tells us you're not going to know. In fact, whenever you think he is coming, is when he's not coming. Because he will come when you don't expect it. That's what the Bible always says, isn't it? And so we're not supposed to use this passage to try to figure out when he is coming. We're supposed to use this passage to realize and live with understanding that absolutely he's coming and absolutely I don't know when. And so absolutely I just need to be ready all the time. Whether I live or die, he's coming. And I need to hold on to that end. 
And so, he says in verse 11, that God will deal with those who are misdirected and following the false doctrine. He will allow those who want to teach and believe a lie to do so. So don't be misled. Verse 13, he says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning... Think about this. Because God from the beginning chose you for, for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief of the truth, to which you are called by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast, hold the traditions that you were taught, whether by word or epistle. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us eternal or everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work. So what's he say? Don't, don't be confused about the when of the arrival. He's coming, not immediately, so what? Understand that this is an eternal plan of God. And you are called to the gospel. So live right. And live right every day. And stand fast knowing, knowing that this is to the glory of God and of Jesus Christ. And that there is an everlasting consolation coming. So focus on that. Not on the immediacy or even the probability of when the Lord might be coming. Be steadfast. Just hang in there. That is your eternal purpose. Chapter 2, 13 through 17. Stay focused there. There's a lot of teaching about the coming of the Lord. And, and you know, the first century what wasn't the last time somebody said, He's coming now. I suppose, I don't have a record you know, all the way through the passing of time. But in the recent centuries, repeatedly, over and over and over and over and over again, now He's coming. We, we not, now we know when He's coming. And well, there, there was a statement, now we know, and now we know, and now we know. That's been the repeated refrain. And it's calling people away from what their focus ought to be. Live right. Live right. Remember the parable of the ten virgins and the, the, the lamps and the oil. That's what this passage is talking about. Make sure you've got enough oil to last. Whenever he comes, make sure you've got oil enough to last, is the point. And finally... He says, do not grow weary in doing good. In chapter 3, he does deal with a problem in the church. There's some, evidently, who are not working. And some have suggested this is because they thought the Lord was coming. So they sell the business, sell the house, and go out and sit in the woods and, and up on a hill and watch for him. And whether or not that is the reason that they're not working, Paul is saying, people, you don't work, don't eat. You know, get back to work. We'll start living for the Lord. Waiting for the Lord doesn't mean sitting on a hill looking up in the sky. Waiting for the Lord means living every day in anticipation of His coming. That's what it means to live for the Lord. And so he says in that text, two brethren that are trying to do right and that they need to deal with this error, don't become weary in well-doing because doing the right thing all of the time does get tiresome. But just always do the right thing. You know, you do the right thing over and over again. You keep doing the right thing and, and it doesn't always work like you wish it would. There's all opposition and problems come up and you keep doing the right thing. Sooner or later you start getting tired of doing the right thing, don't you? You kind of want to respond in kind. React differently. Paul says don't do that. Just keep doing the right thing. 
keep on doing the right thing. Why? Well, because the Lord's coming. That's what Paul keeps telling the church at Thessalonica. And so I guess I don't care how bad you've got it. The message is you've got to hold on. And sometimes it's not the church, it's, it's your own life personally for that misery and the struggle and the opposition and the persecution. In our time, in our culture, and in our world, that's much more likely the area of our struggle. Personal rather than congregational. Personal rather than national and, and uh, governmental against us. But we've got our own oppositions and our own battles and our own persecutions that we face. And so what's the message? You've got to hang in there. You've got to do what's right. You've got to hold on. You've got to be faithful. And the reason you do is because the Lord's coming. And I don't care how old you are or how young you are, you can make it until the end. Till He comes or till you finish your course here. You can make it. I told you how old I am. I'm 55. And I don't even know how much time I've got left, really, do I? I would like to think I've got 30 more years. Let's say at least 25 good working years. And you're thinking, Don, that's a little optimistic. Wish you well. Well, we all want to think optimistically, don't we? But let's say I've got even more than that. How do I know what those years are going to be like? What I'm going to face in the destruction and hurt in my own body, trouble in my own family, turmoil in the church is where I am. Who knows, 20 years from now, we might be facing persecution from our own country or from nations abroad. We don't know what the future holds. We might all be poor people. I mean really poor people. Not poor people like we are now or like our neighbors are now, but like our neighbor nations are. We could face tough times in 30 years. But what does it matter? For us, the Lord's coming. The Lord is coming. And nothing else matters. And that's a good note to end on. And I hope that we can take that thought with us wherever we go for as long as we last. We've got to do what's right because the Lord is coming. 